Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. I want to read a passage of scripture and then sort of give you a summary of where we are quickly. But if you'll turn to Acts chapter 8, I want to read 1 through 5. And Saul was consenting unto his death, that is Stephen, which we talked about last week. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hauling men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then went Philip, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Last week, uh, we talked about the, the almost not only predictable, but, but absolutely unavoidable conflict. There was no way it wasn't going to happen between the rising, developing, muscular culture uh, of, of the church, the Christian believers. Uh, and we use, I'm using the word Christian before it's used in the book of Acts. The believer, the community of believers in Jerusalem and the surrounding culture around them. We, we, we saw that as the, as the community of faith gained definition in its own culture, a culture of love and grace and generosity and of the supernatural and miracles. Um, some were miracles uh, that were so uh, sobering, so huge. Um, I didn't deal with this last week, so I just want to say it in passing. It's, I don't want to make a huge thing of it, but it, it, it was something that happened. Um, we talked about the, the miracle of the healing of the man at Gate Beautiful and others. There are all kinds of miracles that can happen. And some people think a miracle can only be a miracle of healing. Some people think it can only be a, a financial miracle. But there are also very shocking miracles, uh, a miracle is, is the intrusion of God's supernatural power to override the physical laws of the natural universe. So how, whichever way that works. So there is this uh, awkward story of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, so they had seen Barnabas uh, find great favor in the church. He had sold everything he had, gave the money away, and they, and he found great favor with the apostolic community and with the others. And they added one and one and got three. They thought he had, by making that contribution, he had kind of bought his way into leadership in the rising apostolic community. But he was responding. He wasn't trying to purchase his way in, but they, they wanted to. So they had a piece of real estate, a farm or something. And so we'll use American numbers. They sold it for, say, half a million dollars. And they claimed they sold it for a quarter of a million. 
And they came and gave Peter a quarter of a million, uh, the husband did actually, Ananias, came and gave Peter a quarter of a million dollars. See, a huge amount of money. And he said, we sold the farm and this is everything we got for it. <laughs> Peter says, what, what in the world were you thinking to lie to the Holy Ghost? It was your farm. It was your money. Do whatever you want to with it. But the issue is not giving or withholding. The issue is you're practicing deceit in, in, the, in this powerful atmosphere, this rising culture, in order to insinuate yourself into leadership. Instead, you've insinuated yourself into death. And, and Ananias falls dead. And remember, they're Jews, so they have to bury him before sundown. They come in, take him out, bury him. And later on, the wife, Sapphira, comes. <laughs> Late, ladies. I do want to say that. And if you get to church and your husband's already dead, you're late. And, and so uh, Peter says to her, did you sell the farm for a quarter of a million? She said, we sure did. And we're given the whole thing. And he says, here come the men that just carried your husband out to bury him. And they're going to carry you out. What, what were you thinking to conspire to lie to the Holy Ghost? And she falls down dead and they carry her out. And the next verse, sometimes I'm, I'm not the only one. Sometimes the Bible just makes me laugh out loud. The next verse is a brilliant burst of understatement. It says, and great fear came upon all them that believe. I, I think so. <laughs> Don't you know the next day, the next Saturday at the offering, everybody said, here's my check. Anybody want to read it? <laughs> you know. So the point I'm making with that is that it was uh, such a powerful atmosphere. It's not just a matter of signs and wonders of somebody being healed or, or some miracle. There, was this, there is this sense of God's power and presence and authority and, and the holiness and the love and the joy. It's, it's a huge atmosphere. Well, that atmosphere is going to bump up against that culture is going to rub with friction up against the prevailing and surrounding culture of compromise and, and hypocrisy and, and the form of godliness and denying the power thereof. And, and the inevitable happens. The persecution begins. The conflict was, was going to happen. We talked about the death of Stephen. Later on, I mentioned it, we, we haven't come to it as we read through script, through the book of Acts, but we talked about Herod killing James, the brother of John, with the sword. And now this wave of persecution that is, that is the result of this friction that's created. Now, I don't know if any of you are fans of symphony music. I, I have a fascination with uh, classical music, and I love it. Here's something about uh, symphony that I'm sure if you, you've noticed. In the, uh, particularly maybe even in an opera, in the overture, there, there may be some little piece, uh, uh, I mean, just a few bars uh, where a, a, a small instrument, a flute, or even a piccolo or something, suddenly plays this little snatch of melody line. And it doesn't seem important. And then later on, 
in, in about the third movement, you realize that melody, that little tiny snatch of melody line becomes the real deal of the whole symphony. And, and, and now it begins to, to pound and, and blast out. So I want to just give you something, if you will. Look at the, the last verse of Acts chapter 7. And Stephen, he, Stephen kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Oh, I, I started too late. Excuse me. Go back to 58, verse 58 of the seventh chapter. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. Just a toss off line. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I, and then the verse I just read out of order. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was consenting unto his death. At that time, there was great persecution in the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So there's just little, there's this guy named Saul. And then he mentions again, and Saul hated the church. It's a toss off. What we're going to find, you know this, that as the book of Acts unfolds, that little tiny flute solo at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of verse 8 becomes the predominant historical melody line of the whole book of Acts. Saul becomes Paul, and the rest of the book of Acts is actually the story of the, of the leadership of St. Paul. But it's, it's fascinating to me that Luke just kind of buries the lead. Now, let's, uh, let's begin with really with tonight. Saul, as he has mentioned, is a, a predictive in this passage. The predicate is that which causes something to happen. Saul is used to, to cause this wave of persecution. The result of that is the, is the outward thrust of believers from Jerusalem out through the rest of Judea and Samaria and then elsewhere as they begin to flee this pocket of persecution um, both by the, the Jewish leaders and by the Herodian leaders as Herod later killed James. And where do they go? Judea? and Samaria, and the rest of the world. Remember, the last thing Jesus said to them was, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He says, I, I, I'm sending you as my witnesses in all of Judea and Samaria and the rest of the world. And, and the disciples are like, it's like a Monty Python skit. They, they say, he says, Go to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And they say, we hear you and we understand. Stay here in Jerusalem and only talk to Jews. <laughs> and, and now we are to the eighth chapter of Acts. We are eight chapters away from the resurrection of Jesus. And what is going to cause the church 
to finally obey persecution. So I just want to, this is a toss-off line. You can take this for whatever it's worth. If we will not obey God, God can raise up things to make us obey. I'd rather do it because I would rather do it because I wanted to. I don't want dog. I don't want God to sick his dogs on me. And this persecution actually causes them to fulfill the prophetic order that Jesus gave them. Go into Samaria. And so Philip is one of the seven deacons that are chosen to help with the administration of food and service and all to the, to the widows of the, of the believing community. Philip, often referred to as Philip the Evangelist, but he has not been an evangelist. He's been a serving deacon until he comes to Samaria. So Philip arrives at Samaria. Now let's just remind ourselves the last time that we really heard from Samaria was the, was the Samaritan woman, that Jesus goes there. It is not a place that Jews want to go. They, he don't want to be there. It's, it's there. There is a lot of racial and religious prejudice between them. Philip goes to Samaria, and it says that he preaches the gospel there. And there are signs and wonders that are done by him. So see what it means. The apostolic community, that community of Pentecostal faith, signs, wonders, miracle, the proclamation, the authoritative anointed proclamation of the person and power and saving grace of Jesus is now transported out of Jerusalem. And through the witness, not of an apostle, a deacon. He's a guy that was elected by the apostolic community to wait tables. But now because persecution has forced him out, when he goes to this unlikely place of Samaria, he goes preaching, proclaiming, and practicing the miraculous power of Christ. And it says virtually the whole town believes. The whole town believes. And they are baptized. Then there is the mention of this man, Simon the Magician, not Simon Peter, Simon Magus, Simon the Magician. And he also believes, and he also is baptized. Now, Acts 8, 14 through 17 is a fascinating verse. It says, now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. Now, think before we go forward with that verse, what does it mean? It means that the apostolic authority in Jerusalem, hearing that there's been a revival in the name of Jesus in Samaria, wants to quickly send apostolic authority. Stephen is, uh, uh, Philip is just a deacon. So uh, they send these two apostles, Peter and John, arrive at Samaria to, to make sure everything is happening that's supposed to happen and nothing happening that isn't supposed to happen. And it says, when they arrive, Acts 8, 14 through 17, and when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, only they were living as men and women, baptized in the name of Jesus. In other words, now that there had been an evangelical revival, an outpouring of the name of Jesus, the apostolic community 
believed that there should be a Pentecostal revival. They saw Pentecost, what had happened to them in the upper room, as not being a thing that was localized in Jerusalem any more than salvation was localized in Jerusalem. This is a huge moment. This is huge. They are now exporting Pentecost. And they are, they are fully expecting that those people should receive the Holy Spirit. So they lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Simon comes to, uh, Simon the magician comes to Simon Peter and offers him money saying, give me this power that on whomsoever I lay my hands, he may receive the Holy Spirit. The, if he had just Googled up Ananias and Sapphira, he wouldn't have done that. Peter had his weaknesses. One of those was self-preservation. Money was not one of Peter's weaknesses. And Peter says, what are you, what are you thinking? That you can buy the Holy Ghost? You can't buy the Holy Ghost. And he says to him, in, in English it says, thy money perish with thee, uh, in, in the King James Version. In Greek it says, to hell with you and your money. Evidently, Peter struggled with his language until he died. But <laughs> no, he really meant it. He was saying, that is a hellish suggestion. You, your money, that seduction, all of that, back into hell where it came from. So look what, we, what we're seeing here now. The same supernatural, empowered, Pentecost community has now reached from Jerusalem to the Samaritans. They're not Jews, but they're almost Jews. They're, they're not in Jerusalem, but they are in the general location of Israel. So they've stretched a tiny bit because of the persecution. And then look at verse, Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 24, Acts chapter 8. Then answered Simon and said, Simon the magician, pray ye to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem. So God stretches them as far as Samaria, not even them. The apostles are following a deacon. But they leave Philip at Samaria and they go back to Jerusalem. They're still not hearing God. Then put yourself in Philip's position. I just want you to think about this now. As, and let your humanity, get in touch with your humanity or maybe your carnality is what I should say. You have just been used in signs, wonders, miracles. You have stretched the frontiers of the Christian community. You have won an entire community to Christ and you have baptized men, women, and children. The whole town has been water baptized. Your work as an evangelist has been authenticated and validated by the apostolic community. Now he must have said to himself, now what? Now what? I, I'm... Lord, where do you want me to go now? Athens? Athens? Rome? Rome itself? I, I'm ready, Lord. Where, where do you want me to go? Give me another city. Give me a bigger city. I'm ready. And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. 
<laughs> Maybe that doesn't challenge anybody else here. Is it a, a desert, Lord? You give me a city and then you give me a desert? What we think is that we go through the desert and God will give us a city. But he goes, he gets a city, wins a city to Christ. God says, he says, what next, Lord? He says, the Gaza Strip. It is still a desert. You haven't seen a bombed out desert until you've seen the road from Jerusalem down to Gaza. He says, okay. And he starts walking, goes back to Jerusalem, through Jerusalem, through Bethlehem, down to Gaza, a desert road. And there's a, an Ethiopian, um, a eunuch, he's the accountant for Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. And he's been in Jerusalem and he's going back to Ethiopia. And um, let me just comment on this historically, if I can, a little bit. What, you may say, why would an Ethiopian be traveling up to Jerusalem at all? There was and still is, by the way, 3,000 years later, there is still a substantial Jewish community in Ethiopia. Is anybody here old enough? Am I the only one that can remember the last emperor of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie? Anybody else remember? Until he was deposed by the Italians. But Haile Selassie called himself the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The emperor of Ethiopia. Why? Because the Ethiopian Jews believe that when the queen of Sheba went up to visit with Solomon. Remember she came home with all the treasure and everything. The Ethiopians believe she came home with more than treasure. Are we communicating? <laughs> they believe she got pregnant by Solomon. And that... There is Ethiopian Jews. Now you can say, oh, that's just a tradition, everything else. But about 15 years ago, the Jewish high court in Israel ruled that they were Jews. And there began a massive airlift. And when you travel around in Israel today, you will see Ethiopian Jews. Uh, you, they're easily identified. They're Ethiopians. And you can see them. So it's that story is validated by the high court in Jerusalem. So you're in the middle of that story with this guy. So it's a thousand years after Solomon, this Ethiopian is going along and he's reading in the book of Isaiah. And the angel of the Lord says to Philip, approach this chariot. And the next verse tells us a huge thing about Philip. And he ran to the chariot. <laughs> He has a citywide revival. He goes from that to a desert, from that to a single Ethiopian confused about the book of Isaiah, and he doesn't say, okay, okay, fine. It says he ran to the chariot. Understandest that which thou readest? And he says, how can I? How can I understand? The book of Isaiah doesn't make any sense to me. I don't, I don't, is Isaiah writing these things about himself or about another? And Philip goes into the chariot with him and begins there teaching that Ethiopian eunuch of the fulfillment of the, of the Messianic prophecies of the book of Isaiah. 
And faith arises, and that Ethiopian says, here is some water. It must have been a roadside ditch I've been in Gaza, and I've never seen any standing water, but there must have been some there. He says, here is some water. Why can't I be baptized? Why can't I be baptized? Philip says, nothing keeps you from it. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, I'm ready to baptize you. So he baptizes him, and they come up out of the water, and Philip is snatched away by the Holy Spirit to Azotus, where he is found on a street corner preaching. I, I would love to ask if I get to heaven, I can ask, I, was he still wet? <laughs> I've just always wondered. Now, there is the possibility that the Christian community, not just the Jewish community, but the Christian community in Ethiopia springs from that Ethiopian eunuch. At the risk of being offensive, there, there are two things that you might want to think about. Jewish law says that a eunuch cannot go in the temple. So not only is the law now superseded by grace, whosoever will, whosoever will. He is now a Christian, this Ethiopian Jew who by his own religion is not allowed to even go in the temple. He is now a Christian, and furthermore, he may, become, he may actually historically be the father. He who could not be a father becomes the father of the Christian community in Ethiopia. It's a, it's a fascinating little story. Now, what what... What is happening here? What's happening is that God is nudging the Christian community out, away from its base. Go on. Go to Samaria. Okay, we'll go to Samaria. Right back to Jerusalem. Now now to Gaza. Now to Ethiopia. God is fulfilling the internationality which he spoke of in the upper room. All those, all those languages. God is now pushing, nudging the Christian community out, further out. We will come back to Philip later, but let me just tell you the next time, the really the next important time he's mentioned. Paul the Apostle, at the end of his ministry, comes to Caesarea, which is an unclean city. We're going to find out about it next week, why Peter goes to Caesarea, the great outpouring that's there. God's still nudging, still pushing the church outward. But after that, when, when St. Paul comes on his way back to Jerusalem at the end of his missionary journeys, he stops in Caesarea, an unclean Roman city. When I say Caesarea, it doesn't seem important to you, but if I say it the way it's spelled, Caesar. Caesarea. Caesarea. It's a Roman seaport built by Herod because the Romans didn't want to live in the religious community of Jerusalem. They don't want to live up there. They want brothels and, and bathhouses and Roman entertainment. And remember, and the Jews don't want them there either. Rome, all Roman athletic contests were performed in the nude. This is highly offensive to, to a religious Jewish community. So you've got this town perched on the seacoast of Israel that's totally unclean. Jews are not even supposed to go there. 
And when Paul arrives, gets, it's a huge seacoast, so ships arrive there. He finds there four single women who are prophetesses living in Caesarea. They are Philip's daughters. So God evidently found a man who was willing to look past the tribalism and the sectarianism that so haunts the Christian world even today. You mean, you mean, surely God, you don't mean Presbyterians? (laughs) Presbyterians? I, uh, I was preaching at a missions conference in uh, South Georgia, and afterward, a man came up to me with the unlikely name. I'm telling you the truth. His name was Bubba Smith. And Bubba came up to me after, and he said, I, I, I heard everything you see. He said, I want to make a mission trip. I said, great. I, I'm, I'm going to Peru in about uh, two months. Go with me. Would you like to? Oh, he said, I'd like to. We talked, he had never been out of the county in which he was born. You understand the necessary implication of that. He's never been on an airplane. He's never been in an airport. So I said, the first thing you got to do, Bubba, you got to get a passport. I knew we were in trouble when he called me one night and he said, Dr. Mark, I'm at the, I'm at the Kmart. He said, you told me to get a passport. He said, they ain't got Aaron." <laughs> I said, Bubba, you can't get a passport at the Kmart. Long silence. He said, if you can't get a passport at the Kmart, you're in trouble in Colquitt County. And I said, Bubba, you can get it from the highly unlikely source of the federal government. So I sent him to the post office, having obtained his passport. I met Bubba, first time he has ever been to Atlanta ever been out of Colquitt County. He meets me at the Atlanta airport. And we plunged off on a mission trip like Dante and Beatrice. (laughs) Everything. What does that mean? What's that about? Why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? It, It was incredible. When we got to Peru, I discovered Bubba's fascination with language. He had never heard another language. And he was just fascinated with it. He just all the time, how do you say shoe? How do you say hat? How do you say, how do you say water? And finally he was driving me crazy. And I just finally, I turned him over to Carlos, my interpreter. And I said, Carlos, I I can't do this anymore. So I said, Bubba's your, your issue. I came, up the, I came up the steps of the mission compound one day, just as Bubba said to Carlos, how do you say hat? And Carlos said, sombrero, sombrero. And Bubba looked at me and he said, how do you think they got sombrero out of hat? <laughs> And I realized that Bubba thought somehow or another, everybody was thinking hat. And these belligerent Peruvians were insisting on saying sombrero. Then one day he said, Dr. Mark, these Peruvian children are the smartest children in the whole world. He said, I'm, I'm blown away. I said, well, I, 
They're small. They're, kids are kids. Why, Bubba? He said, well, look at them. Four or five years old, already able to speak Spanish. And <laughs> I realized he had no, no philosophy of language. So finally, we got back up. We'd been down to the jungle. We came back up to Lima. We had one extra day. And I said, Bubba, how would you like to go and see the great cathedral built by Pizarro himself? Great. One of the first great buildings built in the, in the whole new world. The great cathedral at the, at the Plaza de Armas. Would you like to go see it? Oh, he said, I'd like to. I never have seen a cathedral. I said, well, no. In Colquitt County, they ain't got an But <laughs> I said, let's, uh, let's go. So we went to the cathedral. We hired an English-speaking guide. It's, it's unbelievable. It's huge. And you remember the Pope had been to, had been to uh, Peru, been made a South American tour, the previous Pope, not the one we had. And, and they had up over, the, up over the altar area, they had a full-size statue of the Virgin Mary in a fantastic, beautiful wedding gown, beaded wedding gown. On suspended on virtually invisible guy wires with lights on it. It was splendid, just suspended in midair, the Virgin Mary in a wedding gown right up over the altar. We went on, we went to the little capilla surround and he'd, the guide was giving us the whole tour and the confessional booths all along the wall and everything. We got all the way to the front and I said, well, what do you think, Bubba? And he put his hands on his hips and narrowed his eyes. And he said, looks Catholic to me. <laughs> what did he think? It was First Baptist? It's got the Virgin Mary. Now, I tell you that humorous story because of this. We can, we can knowing that we have been commissioned by God, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We can turn our eyes in on ourselves, our own needs, our own tribe, our own language, until we become as insular and, and narrow as Bubba. Where we, we peer out at, at people who need the gospel and put our hands on our hips and narrow our eyes and say, look sinful to me. Oh, God. Sinners, look, sin is what sinners get paid to do. That's, that's like their job, see? And we, we, we have to get past that. We have to get over the tribalism, the sectarianism, the things that separate us, that, we, that, that keep us back from fulfilling. And I know the story with Bubba may have been a little bit humorous for you, but let me end with one tonight that isn't all that humorous. When I was a pastor at Calvary Church in Orlando, the local hospital called me and said, we have a patient here, doesn't have anybody to visit him, and, you know, he's wanting a, um, a minister to come, would, could, would you come? And I said, yeah, he doesn't have any family or anything. Well, he has, and they hemmed and hawed, and I said, wait a minute, excuse me, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. I said, is he an AIDS patient? They said, okay, Dr. Ellen, he's an AIDS patient. I said, fine, I'll be there in an hour. I went in and, uh, you know, they had to, in those days, 
putting in the hazmat suit and the thing, the whole thing. And I went in, and there was a 19-year-old boy laying up in the bed in a pink nightgown holding a teddy bear. And when I walked in the door, I said, I'm, I'm Pastor Rutland from Calvary Church. And he said, well, I guess you've come to tell me that Jesus hates queers. I said, I don't know where you got that idea, son. Jesus loves queers. His mouth fell open. He said, well, I never thought I'd ever hear a preacher say that. I said, now, what he wants for you is different than how he feels about you. But I said, Jesus loves you, son, and so do I. We sat there and talked for about an hour. And finally, I said to him, do you believe you're going to die in this hospital? He said, I'm dying, preacher, I'm dying. I said, you're not ever going to get out of this hospital, are you? He said, I'm dying. They've told me I'm going to die right here in this bed. And I said, the question then becomes, where do you go after this? Let's talk about that. And we begin to talk not about hell, but about heaven. I've been talking about the beauty and the splendor, the wonder of it. And he said, well, I, all right, he said, I want that. He said, my life has been hell here. I said, then why would you have it twice? Why would you have it twice? He said, I started with men when I was 14, and he said, I've had so many lovers, I can't even count them. There's no way that I can go to heaven. There's no way I can go to heaven. I opened my Bible and we had sharing with him. After a while, he said, so can I do that? Can I pray that? I said, you absolutely can. He said, I, I, you don't know how perverted my life has been. I said, has been. That's the operative word in that. Has been. He, and he prayed with me right there in the bed to receive Christ as his Savior. And uh, he said, I, it's too late to be baptized. I said, it is not. I said, I'm a Pentecostal now, but I used to be a Methodist. I said, bow your head. <laughs> I poured a handful of water in the palm of my hand and put it on his head. Prayed with him to receive Christ. We talked for a few minutes. And then he looked up at me with this startled look on his face. And he said, get a nurse, get a nurse. And I said, I thought he was telling me he was dying. I said, are you all right? He said, I'm all right. But he said, look at me. Look at me, he said. I don't want to die in a pink nightgown. <laughs> do, you, do you understand what that meant? Yeah, absolutely. The only thing he had left to change was his nightgown. And he changed it. He was dead before morning. Let me tell you something. I'm sorry. I think I'm tired. Excuse me. <laughs> I haven't thought of this boy in 20 years. I believe he woke up in heaven. Hey. Hey. I, 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 do you understand that the whole point of this tonight is this? We keep retreating to Jerusalem and God keeps forcing us out. That's the whole point. And sometimes it, sometimes it isn't the religious leadership. Sometimes it isn't an apostle. It's just some deacon who's willing to 
go down in the desert and climb in the chariot with an Ethiopian eunuch. And sometimes, maybe it's you. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.